0: Welcome, everybody, to Commercial Construction Elevate the Industry. I'm your host, Dave Proceed, and first and foremost, thanks for joining us today. Uh, we're going to discuss in detail one of the most important things that every company needs to be successful. Now, we talk about a lot of things over the, the past two seasons, but I can tell you what we're not going to talk about first, and it's not about a great business plan or a unique service. We're not going to discuss why you need adequate financing. It's not about an entrepreneurial owner or good operators. All of these are important, but this topic is an absolute given regardless of the type, age, size, or complexity of your business. Do you know what we're going to talk about today? We're going to talk about the topic of business insurance. Now, it doesn't sound sexy. It is an absolute must. And uh, we're going to explore how to mitigate risk with appropriate insurance coverage, right? What, What they are Uh, why you need them, where to get them. If you're a business owner, insurance is always relevant. If you're a manager, this uh, this will help you understand why it's worth having a policy and possibly tweaking the one that you have. If you're simply working for a company today, learning this will do two things. It's gonna increase your understanding of risk mitigation and prepare you better for whatever the next steps may be for you. Now we're fortunate to have today a true industry expert I'll let him tell you how long he's been doing this, but he is the Senior Vice President of Align Insurance Services, Inc., Joe Wolf, Joe, welcome to the podcast.
1: Thanks very much, Dave. Good to see you.
0: It, it is good to see you. Know We we go back a long way, and I, I don't want to sound like it's the old boys' network, but it, it sort of is in a little bit, right? We used to play a lot of golf together. We have a lot of good memories. I know you're here, but I, I wanted you on this podcast today because our audience is everybody from owner to intern. And in insurance, I mean, you can't underscore the value of insurance, you know. So, Joe, I set the table in a large way. So let's get started because you got a lot to fill up here. So you're a senior vice president at Alliant. Talk to us about what, what Alliant does. Who is Alliant?
1: Okay. Alliant is a, uh, an insurance broker. We're nationwide, probably doing somewhere in the neighborhood of uh, $13 billion in, in revenue. With a B. With a B, and uh, about 300 offices around the country. And I work out of the D.C. operation for them. And I was with another agency prior to uh, Alliant. Uh, this agency bought the company that I was with. And we got rolled into the Alliant uh, program back in 2005. And so we've been there now f- since 2005, and it's uh, it's been really a great relationship.
0: How big is lion in terms of people, Joe?
1: Uh, right now, Alliant, between Alliant and some of its affiliates, we're over 9,000 people. Yeah. Uh, and that's also nationwide. And that is also um, really not including part of the international program that we have with people overseas. So.
0: so it's all about what, you know, how you help your customers because that's how you grow. But, uh, you know, being part of a big company, you saw... This company rolled you up, as you said, they bought you in, what, 2005? Right. What, what changes has it offered you that you can, in turn, of your clients?
1: Well, you know, I think one of the advantages of being with a, a big company and especially Alliant is that we have programs in just about every facet of the insurance world that you can, you can think of. Um, we're the, the, the biggest writer of tribal business in the United States, all the Indian reservations, Um, We're also big into mergers and acquisitions, financial deals that are coming out in New York. We have a monster construction program, uh, which just the construction program alone has upwards of 150 people. Big in healthcare, big in financial institutions. Most of that is out of New York and out of uh, Texas. We also have a big energy and marine business. So the opportunities that it offers me is in almost anything that I would ever get involved in. Uh, there are specialty people that I can bring into the equation and help me with the risk management of whatever kind of a risk that I'm looking at. So it's a, it's a real advantage.
0: So you got experts across the board, but just like a national buying group, uh, insulation, drywall, whatever, you can leverage also your size when you're when you're negotiating with underwriters I assume. I think that's a big part of it too. But let's focus on what you do for construction. I think it's bonds, benefits, and property casualty, a true single source. Uh, You know, bonding is a big deal and we know why benefits. Of course, everybody is interested in those and you do those, but we're going to focus today on property casualty. So why don't you define what property casualty is?
1: Well, property casualty would be the insurance program for a commercial account. When I got into the business in 88, the people that I that I joined, were mainly construction oriented. So I've in essence, been in the construction insurance process of risk management now since 1988. And so what is that? 12. That's what 34 years Uh, (laughs) time goes by pretty fast when you're having a good time. But uh, it allows me to get into pretty much everything from people that are just getting into the business people that have been in the business a long time and i think at with with my book of business and the way alliant looks at things they're interested in the risk management and also solutions for whatever company you get involved in and, and they certainly differ based on size based on what they do uh, for the entire industry of construction
0: so if you're a contractor listening right and i would ask you this joe how how much or how do you assess how much insurance that you need to buy? Now, this is where a good broker comes in, okay? And we'll get to, you know, adequate insurance later on, but but how do you assess, you know, how do you assess, or maybe there's a couple, three ways to assess how much insurance you should be carrying in workman's comp, in general liability, in umbrella, in auto? How do you, how do you determine that?
1: Well, if, if you go through, if, if we're talking about construction, you're talking about probably five lines that are pretty much mandatory. The general liability, you're talking workers comp, property, auto, and in an umbrella. And in a lot of the cases, for example, the general liability, the uh, the liability limits usually are at a million dollars uh, per occurrence and you get $2 million aggregately for whatever claim you could have. The workers' comp is statutory. And now with what's going on with most general contractors, they're asking for higher limits. So at one time where the levels were at 500,000, now they're asking for a million dollars worth of coverage. Umbrellas started a million, uh, and automobile, at least for us starts to a million. There are some carriers out there that'll write you know, smaller limits, but for the most part, the construction industry contractually won't accept anything less than a million. So a lot of, the levels of the limits are dependent upon the contractual obligations that my clients are, are faced with.
0: So, and you said it because if you've been in commercial jobs, typically there's an insurance uh, minimum, right? For all those things you mentioned. Now you did use the word statutory. When you talked about workman's comp, explain that.
1: Statutory means that the state is requiring the coverage. Um, if you're in business, and you've got people working for you, you really don't have a choice. You've got to provide workers' compensation insurance for them. And they also provide it for multi-states. And uh, it's it, it's just not a, not a choice. Some of the people that are just starting businesses try to get into it by um, getting away with not having it. And uh, I'm finding more and more that the people they're working for that are still in the construction business or their owners are requiring it. So nobody wants to be responsible for somebody else's claims. And workers' comp can be a nightmare, really can.
0: Yeah, and it's an ongoing thing, right? Yes. It's a sometimes permanent partial, two words that every insurance underwriter hates to hear. Um, you know, let's talk numbers real quick. And I know we're jumping you know, forward quickly, but is there a rough percentage on how much insurance costs should be based on your value. Let's say you're a subcontractor in the service business, you're doing 10 million bucks. Give me an idea of what a contractor would pay uh, in insurance generally. Do you have an idea of that?
1: You know, it's kind of hard to do that, Dave, because contractors do different kinds of things, different kinds of um, classifications, have different levels of, of rates. Somebody doing steel erection and doing $10 million a year is going to have higher insurance costs than somebody who's doing flat work concrete and doing $10 million because of the rates for both the general liability and for the workers comp. So it's it's pretty hard to generalize. Um, and if, if you're a general contractor, then you're also looking at subcontractor rates and they all vary also by, um, by the carriers.
0: So, and you bring up some good points. It really depends on your risk, right? It depends on yes. the risk of the company, yeah. because that's what the underwriter is looking at. Um, you, you know, in in one word, and I hope I, you know, maybe we're on the same on the same uh, plane here. In a word, right? What is it? The essential ingredient in your mind that that should be that should exist between a business and its insurance broker. If there was one word, what would it be? like what do people need to do with you in order to have you lead them in the right direction?
1: I think one word, uh, advice. I mean, uh, Companies have to be interested in, um, in the service they get from an insurance agent. In, in too many scenarios, we're just considered a, a used car salesman because they look at us as a commodity, a necessary evil. And they figure that uh, their decisions based on numbers and there's been too many scenarios that I've seen where the numbers really don't justify uh, the choice because you need somebody who understands the risk and how to properly protect the client, not how much they're going to charge.
0: It's now, two different things. That is, that's the n- true words that have been spoken. Let me say that. And I, I give you a, a personal experience back, way back when uh, I inherited our insurance broker. Okay. I bought my business from some partners and I inherited a guy and I really liked the guy. He was a good guy. And I trusted him. I trusted his advice, as you say, right? His advice. And his advice was get this, 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 and this. And that was great because we were adequately covered, but we were paying way too much. I was doing about 20 million at the time. It's not big, but it's not small either. And this broker was absolutely appalled when he found out, I was checking his numbers with another carry after I bought the business. Okay. So you know what happened, right? You're laughing. What happened was I found out that he was 35% high across the board. And, you know, it's like anything else. You don't take advantage of your friends or your best customers, but he did. Obviously he lost the, um, he lost the account and I'm not sure, you know, what he's doing these days, but you know, we're gonna, we're gonna take a real quick break here. And when we get back, We're gonna talk about, Joe, how insurance, maybe we can say safety and insurance, has changed over the last 10 to 20 years, okay, and where it might be going. Hey everybody, I'm Dave Prasida, President of Adequore Construction Services, LLC, and I would love to talk to you business owners about your business. I bet you most of you that are listening have at least 75% of your personal equity tied up in the business. If you care about options on how to get that money out, that's what I wanna talk to you about because I've been through it. I was a business owner and I sold my business. Didn't even know there was a buyer, but there are plenty of them. There has never been a better time, never been a better time than now to sell your business. So maybe you haven't even thought about it. The last deal I did, the guy, it, I talked to him, I said, do you ever consider selling your business? He goes, didn't know I could. Well, yes, you can. There's a lot of options. I would urge you to go to my website, adicorp.com, A-D-I-C-O-R-P.com. My last name spelled backwards. And go to uh, season one podcast, episode two, sales and acquisitions. It's going to answer a lot of questions you might have. Yes, we talk about how you value your company, but that's only one piece right? We're talking about why you would sell, who would buy it? Common concerns about you, your staff, your clients, your legacy, all important things to discuss. So go and listen to that podcast and then contact me. Either call me or leave a message on my contact page on the website and I will get back to you. Because as I said, when I started, I look forward to talking to you about your business between now and then. Stay safe and stay tuned. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to Elevate the Industry. Uh, We're here with Joe Wolf, a good friend and senior vice president at the Alliance uh, uh, Insurance Services Group. Uh, You know, Joe, we we said we were going to talk about the evolution of insurance and I say safety. You know, I I just want to tell you, I remember back in the day, (laughs) I remember walking on a high rise in New York with a suit and tie, hard shoes, no PPE. Zero. Now, that was back, you know, some 30 years ago. How has safety changed and, and is it is it a, a really the result of higher insurance or is it a result of people caring more or a little bit of both? What do you think?
1: Well, I, in, in terms of, of safety, uh, I guess you have different viewpoints. You have the insurance viewpoint and then you also have the, the carrier's viewpoint. And if you look at it from the insurance company standpoint, right now they're going through a period where every claim that they have is more expensive than it was a year ago. And the ones from a year ago are a lot more expensive than they were 10 years ago. You figure that they have, from a workers' comp standpoint, they have much more that they can do for injuries. There are more drugs that, have, that affect what they're doing to recover. Uh, and as a result the prices go up same with automobile Uh, automobile right now is probably the riskiest of all of the different types of policies people are texting people are making phone calls and every injury it's more expensive to fix the car it's more expensive to fix the injury to the to the people and as a result prices have just been spiraling and going up and up so what what all this causes the The problem that the insured then has to deal with is they have people that go out from the companies and they got to visit different sites, they ask questions, they make demands. Demands are everything from telling you what they want in your contracts, when you deal with people, uh, all the way to them saying that you have to have a policy for people that use their own vehicles in your company. Uh, they've, They've really kind of screwed down the hatch on making uh, it is safe as they can from their standpoint. And for the companies that take this and are, are, are interested in having safe programs, uh, they make out because they do get, for the most part, better rates. You have companies that don't want to lose you, so they're willing to give you a break where maybe somebody else doesn't. But the safety has become a, a real vital part of insuring. From the standpoint of the broker, documentation, applications, for for everything Uh, it's like you you just can't tell the insurance company what you want to tell them because they in essence don't believe you so everything is documented which makes the process harder and then when you start thinking about you made a uh, you you said something earlier about you know uh, companies and what what makes the what the companies are going to do about marketing and getting numbers uh, a really good I think a good broker is doing the marketing for their clients. Uh, They're not having to worry about what another carrier is doing because a good broker is going to that carrier before the renewal process or before they write the account to begin with. So, uh, that's all the process, the underwriting that I have to go through the underwriting that we then have to wait for the insurance companies to go through, to bring in a proposal that has several quotes, and then you can evaluate what you're getting in coverage based on what the cost is.
0: So, Joe, who are the big players, the big underwriters you deal with? I'm more curious than anything.
1: Yeah, the big players, Travelers, CNA, Hartford, AIG, Zurich, they're all big standard uh, companies that we all deal with. Um,
0: So, you know, there's there's two things that I keep seeing uh, in the last couple of years anyway. And it's pollution coverage. Now, was there even pollution coverage available 15 years ago?
1: Yeah, there was, but there wasn't a lot of people pushing it. A lot of what's taking place in the construction marketplace today, insurance wise, is all related to the attorneys that are writing the contracts for the big general contractors. So when the general contractors give the contracts to their subs, they've got to go and abide by all the different parts of that contract and where in the past you didn't see pollution unless you were actually dealing with something that could be causing a, a pollutant. You didn't see professional liability as something that uh, that a sub would need because they're really not drawing any plans or signing any plans. And there's just some terrible examples out there. And you know I can talk from myself for a one-on pollution where I had a contractor and he uh, he built whatever he built. It was a school. And it goes back about eight years before I get involved. When we get in, we, we put the pollution in place. But when he had the coverage, I mean, when he had the incident, the claim, uh, he didn't have it. And a claim came in from one of the counties because there was a, an attorney running around the county with signs telling teachers that if they were sick, it was probably because of mold. Wow. And if there was And if there was mold, it was probably because it wasn't built correctly. And so my contractor was sued by the school and by people inside, some teachers in the school, and it wound up costing because because this contractor did not have the proper coverage. It cost him almost seven hundred thousand dollars out of yeah. pocket to settle with the teachers, and then he had to you know take care with all the professionals that he had to hire to come in and do all the research and all the uh, looking around the school for mold and try to find it, and I mean. Mold's everywhere. Uh, mold was there before he built the school and the minute that he was finished and there was no mold, mold was starting someplace
0: mm-hmm. and there's
1: absolutely no proof from what I've been told that mold causes illnesses, but he couldn't afford to have it go to a jury because the jury would just say, well, you know, you're the big contractor and you've got to let you got paid a lot of money for that job and, you know, it's got to be your fault. So you know, the penalty would have been a lot larger, but he had to pay $700,000 out of pocket when he could have had the whole thing covered if he had the proper pollution policy.
0: Which would have cost him, what do you think, a year? I
1: don't know, five to
0: $7,000. Yeah, so again, when you say necessary evil, I don't know if that's the right way to, to phrase it, but nobody wants to spend money, but that's protection. Yeah. It's protection money.
1: Yeah, and, and, and Dave, there's, there, there's a lot of contractors, they just don't feel they need it. They don't feel they need also professional liability or or E&O coverage. And in today's marketplace, if if you're a mechanical contractor, uh, if you're an electrical contractor and you make a suggestion of a change to the the specs, the drawings, because it's gonna be less expensive because it's gonna take time, it's gonna save time. What happens is you've made, you've contributed to the design of that project. And if, if something goes wrong, even if it's not your fault, you're brought into the lawsuit and without professional liability or the E&O, um, there is no coverage. And then so your attorney fees and all of that are paid out of pocket. And in today's marketplace, because of cost, we're writing the pollution and the and the um, professional liability together because it's less expensive
0: that way. Well, you bring up a really good point on the professional liability side so I work with a company now And the last three jobs they got were design assist jobs, and I insisted that they get um, a statement, you know, a letter from the uh, the general contractor, signed off by the architect and the engineer, record that this company who I worked with does not accept or have any liability with regard to design. That's all by others, and that we got an indemnity. So you you know this this is real. It happens. I, I I see it happen. It's happening now. Um, when an underwriter looks at a, a company, and I'm sure you do too, what kind of data are they looking for to determine the, the amount of risk? Because you get you get two mechanical contractors and they treat safely differently, and it's got to show up somewhere. What do they look for?
1: Well, you know I, I think if I'll try to give an example. If you look at a plumbing contractor and a mechanical contractor, in a lot of ways, they do a lot of the same things. They're connecting water with pipes, but a mechanical is probably also placing equipment, you know, big ton, big, huge pieces of equipment. Uh, they may, they also may be involved in some kind of connections with gas, maybe a plumber's not. So depending on the complexity of the, of, of the work that the contractors do, that generates additional risk uh, there's a I have a client that erects steel but it's not it's not load bearing and it's a huge difference from a liability standpoint because if you're putting up the steel that's holding up the building as opposed to putting up the steel that is the frame for an elevator they're completely different risks so Absolutely. one guy's going to pay a whole lot more for what he's doing for steel erection than the guy who's not doing anything related to, uh, you know, bearing of the walls and, and of the structure. So it, it just varies. And like I said, these applications talk about revenue. They Everybody's looking for financial statements at this point uh, for, for almost everything, unless you're a, a real small type of contractor, a sub. And uh, the bigger accounts are just having to spew a lot of information that they never had to do uh, in the past. And, and and as a result, it makes the whole process drag out from me asking for it to me getting it to getting it to the underwriter, to them to review it and to get back. So it, it's a lot different today than it was.
0: I'll tell you, the administrative support one needs to run a successful commercial business is incredible. And this is just a piece of it. Um, What about let's talk about EMR, how important and what is EMR?
1: Well, in the marketplace that I'm in, supposedly, if your EMR or your modification factor is over 1.0, then uh, it's very easy to be turned down for work. And uh, there's a lot of people also in, in this area. And I think it's going to change a little bit because for a long time, there was a thing called the Injured Workers Fund. It's now called Chesapeake Insurance. And there were a lot of people with the Injured Workers Fund or Chesapeake. And because of the way they promulgated, which means there's a function. And if you look down at a piece of paper, it's probably seven inches wide, the calculation. And they come up with a mod, which is based on three years of, of your claims versus your premium. And they give you, in essence, kind of a loss ratio and they put you against all the other people that are in your class of, of business and they come up with a mod and it's called an experience mod and if that mods over 1.0 uh, people look look down their nose at you and they, they want to know why so when that happens you know a lot of times well we have to put together letters and explanations of what happened sometimes it's really not the fault of the contractor they just got rolled into something that they became additionally responsible for but the EMRs really, really worth it. And in in terms of the insurance companies giving you better rates, all the all the companies have five or six, seven different companies for for workers' compensation. And they'll put you into one of those companies based on kind of your loss ratio, your mod. So if you have a really good mod, they're going to put you into a better rated company, which is going to drive down your costs, uh, which is really important. And one of the other things that that we see with with mods are misclassifications of the account. Uh, a lot of people think that if you put the classes in a certain place, you'll get lower premiums, but they don't realize that as a result of the lower premiums, if you have claims, uh, the ratio between them drives up the the modification factor. Right. And so instead of doing it correctly. And there's a lot of competition that I have out there that do it incorrectly on purpose to get the account to come in with better numbers, as opposed to sitting down and actually analyzing what they do and asking questions. Uh, It makes a a huge difference when it comes audit time uh, down the road.
0: You know, you bring up a good point because you talk about um, safety and EMR. And more and more, I'm seeing what we call OSIP, owner-controlled insurance programs, CSIPs, which is contractor, and D-SIP, which is developer. But these companies, you, know, you can probably explain it better, but I, from my perspective, these companies are underwriting their own insurance for a specific project and betting that they can provide a better safety record than they would otherwise. So they, it's like a profit center for some of these contractors or owners or developers. How would you explain that, Joe?
1: well um osips and csips are what we usually see we don't see a a lot of developer ones but the big companies that are writing the huge projects uh, sometimes they're a project at a time sometimes it's a, a running osip or a running csip where they just rotate from one to another and they are profit centers for i know the largest one in in the DC area, it is an actual profit center, and the person who runs, who runs that profit center, is pretty important with that general contracting firm, and they just feel that, with, the safety, the risk managers that they have on the job, the insurance carriers that are, they're bringing in, to insure that project for them, they have a much better chance of keeping the losses down and claims than the actual contractor does, and you know what you're seeing kind of on top of that is because of, of what these big general contractors are doing. Most subs of, of size have a risk management department themselves. They have safety people now because they realize that if they're not safe, uh, the insurance can get, you know, almost to the point you can't afford it. So these OSIps, and Alliant runs uh, probably the biggest one in, in the state of Maryland, which is in Baltimore and we're at we're actually the administrators on the OSIP business that is written for uh, the maryland stadium authority and uh, i think in some cases general contractors and subs that get involved in these OSIPs aren't happy because they've got to jump through hoops they've got an administration manuals that are you know two and three inches thick they have to read through and they have to cover themselves but they have to also make sure that the subs that are working for them understand what the rules and regulations are for the project they're doing so it once again it's just more administrative work it's that a, everybody's got to do to protect themselves
0: you know so in essence they're asking contractors to eliminate the cost of insurance to identify it and and you know some contractors will give them the, the real number some won't uh, that's a whole nother story but they're betting that the cost of their insurance is going to be less than uh, what their savings are basically and that's what it is now that said it's important as you said to have a good safety program a good emr clean loss rounds because if all else is equal you're at 5 million and your competitors at 5 million you're in an osip program but your safety is head and shoulders better than the safety of your competitor even though your price is the same i I would say you're going to have an advantage would you agree
1: well, you know, one of the things, you know, the, the scenario that you're painting is something that is becoming more and more prevalent with a lot of, you know, larger contractors. And I'm seeing that uh, attorneys, uh, CPAs are now bringing to the forefront to these good, big, safe companies, a thing called a captive and captives are an alternative to the standard marketplace. And they usually write the general liability auto and workers comp for a company. But for the companies that are really safe in spending a whole lot of money in premium, their their feedback to me is, I pay all this money. I don't use anything on claims. Uh, All I do is give all this money to the profit center of the insurance company. And that's, that's the truth. And the insurance companies really do not have a weapon to combat this they just don't and so a lot of the all the big insurance companies are losing a lot of their really big good safe accounts because there's a better way of doing business from an insurance standpoint and these companies now can have their business looked at on an individual basis by actuarials for their own safety and what they do to make themselves safer than worrying about what an insurance carrier is going to be doing looking at them as one of two or three or four hundred accounts they have across the country and if that class of business is not doing well then they're punished along with everybody else because of the class of business the captive eliminates that and some of the numbers that i've seen they're just they're unbelievable that a company can put that money in their pocket in essence, as opposed to giving it to the insurance company. So
0: Uh, with that, is it associated typically with a large, um, uh, well, let's call it a self-insured policy. How's it different from a self-insured policy?
1: uh, A a self-insured policy would be um, where a company is assuming all of the risk. They would have what we call an individual stop loss for as a deductible those deductibles can be anywhere from 10 to $50,000 on the benefit side. I have one that the uh, deductibles $100,000 per claim, but they uh, they go ahead with these uh, captives and the the, the deductibles that they're they're dealing with uh, are nowhere near the same because they're they own an insurance company along with a lot of other members. So maybe there's 89, 100, 150 members that own an insurance company and each one of those individual companies have an actuary that looks at their specific business and sets up their premium. Uh, everybody in that captive is in the same bucket and they all pay their premiums. Uh, they all post collateral to make sure that nobody gets burned by somebody leaving. Yep. And when there's a, a major monster claim, everybody in that captive has to pitch in and pay for it but you only pay the percentage that you are within the captive all right. so somebody may be one one percent of the total premium of that captive so if if they were burdened with the cost it would only be one percent of whatever that claim is versus uh, you know whatever it could be and all of the captives are insured they all have reinsurance they all have umbrellas um, to me it's just a different way of doing business and and it's a lot. It, it can be a lot safer than self-insured because a real bad, a real bad claim on a self-insured account can put you out of business.
0: Yeah, yeah. And now you get involved with Captive, Joe. Yes. Okay. So you business owners out there, if you're really good at what you do, you might want to talk to Joe about the captive idea. Um, he, he's obviously on it. You know, safety culture. And we're talking about safety and this to me, safety is really twofold. And one is for the human reason, right? For to to protect the safety of the worker, also to protect the property, right? And then there's a financial piece. Now, some people forget the first two and just think, how much is it going to cost me? That's really not, I don't think, is the right culture for a good safety program. You know, what, what would you recommend, Joe? a company who's having difficulty with safety do to change that culture to a more safe environment, which again, affects so so many things for the right reasons in a positive way.
1: Well, when you talk about safety, it's got to start at the top of the company. And the person, the people who run that company have to hold everybody's feet to the fire when something goes wrong. Uh, They can't tolerate uh, negligence accidents that shouldn't happen. Uh, and I don't want to say there's retribution, but uh, it's how it's reported. It's who's done it, how far down the line does it go? Are the foreman are uh, the superintendents on top of it? And I find that when the owners of the company are really, really interested in safety for a lot of the reasons that you mentioned, both just to be safe, uh, most people who own a contracting company, feel like they have a family and the family that they have are their workers. They've got to keep them working. Uh, they've got to keep their families alive with income and they can't afford to go out of business because somebody's done something wrong. So uh, the people that really recognize that have much better safety programs uh, than, than, than others. And I can tell you that the, uh, the captive that I just wrote, uh, based on, I don't know, $480,000 in premium. Their loss ratio is eight percent. So, uh, I mean, that's just unbelievably low, uh, and they're proud of that. And as a result, yeah. the captive invited them to join them. You know, a, a, a regular company can't just say, "I want to join. I want to join you." Your captive—that's that, just not the way it works. And you go through really intensive risk management by the captive just to be able to have the captive say, I like what you're doing. So uh, the safety is just important and, and it affects everything. And maybe because I get involved in, in the bonding too, you start looking at working capital and net worth and what can happen to a company that has to spend more money because of safety uh, for whatever the reason, whether it's, it's rate, whether it's insurance policies, uh, it makes a big difference to their whole program. And financially, the last thing you want people to do is have to go out Um, and borrow money. And, and, you know, all the bonding companies want you to to have uh, a line of credit. They just don't want you to use it as opposed to the people that are not safe. And if they have a line of credit, they're into it. And it's it's a big difference from a solvency standpoint really is.
0: You know, you you talk about qualifying for a captive. I think that's a really good way to look at it. Am I good enough? Number one. Uh, But what people don't realize, everybody talks about, yes, the human element, the injuries and so on, that that's terrible, damage to property, terrible. But they always say, well, what it cost me for insurance, what they don't realize is that when you're bidding work, if you're in pre construction, you've got to include the cost of insurance in in your bid, right? Because if you get the job, you're gonna pay it. Now, how does that impact your ability to get work? And it's a big deal. Anyway, we're going to take another break. When we come back, we're going to discuss This is one of my favorite topics, but they're truly not fun, (laughs) but it is in in a sense. The calls you never want to get. These are horror stories of the underinsured. So we'll see you all in about a minute. Hey, everybody. If you're looking for a strategic business partner who does subcontracting work on the interiors, let me tell you about the CFP Group. They are a minority business enterprise and have been in business for over 20 years. If you're interested, you can contact them by email at cfpgroup1 at gmail.com or call them directly at 410-977-8568. That's 410-977-8568. Take it from me. I've done business with them, and I know they can get the job done. So welcome back, everybody, to Commercial Construction Elevate the Industry. We're here with uh, my good friend, Joe Wolf, who's been in the insurance business for a long time. Let's just say that, Joe. Eternity. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> you know, you have been doing this for a long time, but Joe, share some stories of the consequences of being underinsured. Now, before we go there, I know you can be overinsured. And if you're overinsured, it's because your broker is not taking care of you. He doesn't understand your business and you're buying too much insurance. You need a better broker. But let's talk about consequences of being underinsured.
1: Okay. well, there's a a couple of things that that come to mind. Um, A lot of contractors really don't see the need for umbrellas. And it's very seldom that you see the umbrella that has to come into play because it comes over top of your automobile coverage, your general liability and also over Part B of your workers' compensation. But uh, I can think back to a client. This is a while ago. He had uh, his son was driving his company car and got into a head on accident uh, with another car with two people in it. The son was in shock trauma in Baltimore, I think for close to a month. He was in a body cast. One of the other people died in the accident. Both of the cars were destroyed. And he happened to have he had a six million dollar umbrella. And if he didn't have the umbrella, the umbrella took care of all of the additional claim numbers that came in over top of the auto accident since it was his son's fault. Uh, And the son was also drinking, which made it worse. Uh, They were able to take care of of that claim. If this account just had a one million dollar umbrella and thought that it's never going to happen to me. And if it does, I have another million to cover it. He would have been out of business. Uh, He would have been sued personally, probably could have lost his house. I mean, there's so many, so many things that come into play. Now, that that's just one example. Uh, There's another example. uh, One of the things that a lot of contractors, they're starting to buy into it more today than they did in the past. But employee practice uh, insurance Uh, It's called employee practice liability insurance. And with what's going on today with uh, things in the office from wrongful terminations to discrimination, discrimination, harassment, uh, retaliation, all kinds of things happen in the workplace. And the employer doesn't necessarily have to be guilty of it, but he can be sued for it. And I had a client who didn't think he needed it. He said, I have a small group here and everybody's you know, really good friends. And he was in blue. He was uh, he was sued for sexual harassment based on the fact that a postman came in and was telling jokes to people that were off color. He was sued by one of his employees who said that, you know, that came against my religion and um, that kind of abuse I shouldn't have at work and it cost him $200,000 out of his pocket because he didn't have employee practice liability insurance. So uh, strange things can happen when you have no concept of of what could happen because of the people you think you know in your office. Uh, Another another thing that's happening uh, these days is cyber insurance. A lot of people are just poo-pooing that because they don't think that's going to happen and Really, the biggest claim that's uh, one of the biggest claims, I think, was Target and some personal information and all kinds of stuff came out of Target from credit cards and and names, Social Security numbers. And it all was originated because of a contractor. And I think it was uh, one of the vendors for that plumbing contractor's computer was stolen and they were able to hack into Target. And it all went back to that plumbing contractor. And one of the things that you have to think about is, uh, and I don't think a lot of people understand what happens with a cyber attack, but there's uh, there's legal needs. You've got to have people investigate what happened. That needs attorneys. Uh, there's, uh, I just had one uh, where it was ransomware. That's extortion. And he wanted to be paid in Bitcoin. And you've gotta be You've got to be with somebody who understands how to negotiate with a ransomware hacker uh, for extortion and how to take care of that uh, with Bitcoin. I mean, the little things like this, people don't take into consideration. And for cyber, uh, if if you leave your your computer at the coffee shop and you come back, it's still there. You have no idea who's been in it, but they have been in it and they've picked up a lot of information. So that's another area that. that we're seeing that more people are paying attention to data breach and cyber insurance, cyber liability insurance.
0: And those things you mentioned are, are part of the evolution of the industry, because, uh, our society is changing for sure. Yeah, yep. um, you know, Joe, this is supposed to be an enlightening podcast here. You now, I did ask you to come to, <laughs> to offer some stories. I, I have a question for you. Uh, and this is so, It's common, but when you have company vehicles and you have people driving company vehicles, what typically are the terms that they are allowed to or or insured to drive the company vehicle?
1: Well, most companies have what we call hired and non-owned coverage on their policy. And what that affords the the company is that if they as a company were to go ahead and rent a vehicle for company business, they have a million dollars of liability coverage for that vehicle damage they do to other people and other vehicles. They have an umbrella that would go over that, but they also have what they call non-owned and non-owned means that Dave, you and I have a company and um, one of our employees, we say, you know, here's, here's the lunch order. I want you to go to Subway and bring this lunch back for us. If she does that through our direction and she's in an automobile accident, the company can be liable for that. And the only place that's picked up is under this thing called non-owned automobile insurance. And so her policy would respond to the accident if she was liable. And after her policy is expired, then they come to the company. And then the company would would take care of it after that. So as a result of this coverage in the auto policy that all the carriers are issuing and the, the carriers actually offer this policy, even if the company doesn't have any vehicles that are insured, but there there is the exposure. So they still need to have that under a liability scenario for the owner. When uh, when 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 that happens, uh, the insurance companies now are coming to the owner of the company and they're saying, "Okay, Dave, well, you need to set up a whole set of of directions and things that your employees have to do. They have to have a certain level of insurance, you have to sign documents, they're not going to drive. They're they're not going to be on the phone texting while they're driving. Uh, And it's it's real kind of heartburn for the insurance for the for the for the companies because they feel. I can't tell my employee what to do with their vehicle. Yet they're being told by the insurance company. If you don't put down some laws and regulations, we're not going to write your insurance for your auto. So just another administration, pain in the butt that we've all got to go through to,
0: to take care of it. There's uh, so many, things it's a strain. Even when you're having a company party, Right. A company picnic, a Christmas party, whatever. Uh, there's insurance for everything in case you you, your listeners didn't know that. Uh, one thing I did want to mention and when you talk about an umbrella, right, a million dollars versus, versus five million. I, I think I'm right in assuming that each million above the million is going to cost proportionately less. Is that a fact, Joe?
1: Yes, that, that's that's the truth. But right now, maybe the worst of every line of business that everybody is buying or umbrellas um, umbrellas are just ridiculously expensive. Uh, the first million isn't too bad, but when you get up to somebody needing $20 million, you may have to go to three different carriers to layer the wow. umbrella, umbrella limits. Um, I just had a renewal with a twenty million umbrella and, uh It was being written by a carrier who took the first 15 million. And that carrier said, I am not going to take the first 15 million anymore. I'll just write 10. The price for 10 was the same as the price for 15. And I still had to get five more.
0: So the
1: insurance companies are just gagging on um, on umbrella capacity. Nobody really has it. And it's it's really, really expensive.
0: Is it because of the litigious society we live in? Is that part of it?
1: Well, sure. I mean, uh, the umbrella is basically written. uh, It's based on your general liability costs, your automobile premium. And both of those are are going through the roof, especially automobile. So uh, that's one of the reasons. And the capacity is that people just aren't willing to give that much insurance in one place as they used to. And so the capacity they have for individual accounts uh, just aren't as high as they used to be. And when you have to start going around begging carriers to give you five million here, five million there, maybe ten. It. Yeah. I mean, begging.
0: You're paying. Yeah. So, yeah, that drives the cost of doing business up. So let's change topics for a little bit. And that and I'm going to say, Joe, when When buying insurance, okay, what advice would you give to a new business green just hanging out to shingle?
1: I think you need to sit. I mean, I've always thought that the insurance business is a relationship business, and there's times that, you know, I meet somebody and I'll walk away because what what I think is prudent for that, that company to take insurance. Uh, is not what the owner of that company thinks. And I I think you need somebody to sit down and explain what the coverages are, where your liability and your risk is developing, and write the policies that handle that risk. Everybody doesn't need 10 or 15 policies. Uh, Some people do, but not everybody. And somebody who's starting out in business, I think has to be a little bit more prudent on what they spend and how they go about insuring themselves. So uh, it's, it's, it's a real discussion of, of needs versus wants. And uh, the only way people like myself are able to grow a business is by helping people in the beginning and hoping that they grow. And as they grow, you grow along with them. In some cases that works and in some cases you know, uh, it doesn't, but that's the way I've always looked at it. And I think that people that are new in business need to take a look at what they do and have somebody explain to them why they need the different insurance policies.
0: Well, you know, you just brought up a huge point and for you new business owners out there, people contemplating getting in business, right? Understand that your broker, your broker should want what's best for you. And, and look, if, if, even if they're selfish, it's going to come back to them if you grow and you and you prosper. But a good broker will do it for the right reason. So now the new business, the green guy, the green girl, the business itself jumps into the big leagues with Clark, Turner, Hensel Phelps, Whiting, Turner, all of the big boys. Right yeah. uh, What what advice would you give somebody in that in that situation?
1: Well, I think that uh, One of the ways you stay in business is getting paid. And there's a lot of people general contractor wise that have reputations that don't necessarily follow that that story. So I I think you need to really have to take a a strong look at the contracts that you're looking to write with whoever, whether it's Hensel Phelps, whether it's Harkins or Clark, Um, they all have their own separate issues. And uh, I know at one time I used to work with a guy at Clark because they had uh, people in pretty much everywhere. Now they have minority participation requirements. And one day I was having lunch with the guy who was one of their purchasing people. And he opened up a a spreadsheet that like folded out three times. And he had a a $300 million job and he had to provide 35% of that with minority participation. So he actually ran a school. For new contractors, so they could learn all of the things from insurance to was legal. It West,
0: was it West Stiff?
1: Yeah, West Stiff. Yeah, I really good friends with West, yeah. and uh, they taught them all the different things that they need. And uh, I'm, I guess I'm one of the three big ones. Uh, I think that maybe the most important person uh, is the CPA because he's got to let the the new client understand how he needs to keep money. And what's important, the legal guy is going to help contractually, but hopefully you never have to get involved with the legal guy from another standpoint and you need to be protected. So,
0: uh, Well, you know, Joe, coming from you, that, that, that think about what Joe just said. Here's a broker in insurance. He didn't even mention insurance because your insurance is going to be driven by the contracts that you sign. There's going to be minimum requirements. The broker is going to take care of that. But but Joe is is saying that We've said this in many different occasions that your ability to get paid is the lifeblood of your business. Understand what your limits are and 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 live by it. And if you can't negotiate in the contract, don't do it. Now, Joe, last one. Uh, well, not the last one. Next, the last one. What would you say to a buyer who's who's acquiring a new business? What should he be looking for or she be looking for in that new business in terms of their insurance coverage?
1: Well uh, I, I I would think my advice to that person would be that they need somebody to sit down with whatever that other company is, that new company that he's considering either merging, merging or acquiring and have somebody tell him what do you think I need? Where am I missing? Are there any coverages that or any coverages or limits that aren't in place? for me to be able to do the work that I'm going to contract with, for with an owner or a general contractor. And once that is done, you know, I would think that from a a price standpoint, the CPA is going to come in with some type of, of, of a value that uh, will make sense. And if it makes sense to make the purchase, then people like me are there ready to merge the businesses and make sure there's an insurance program set up either for the new one by itself or for both as they come together and it. Once again, it's 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 analytical. It's sitting down and discussing the risk management of what that that group of people do.
0: Well said and again, there's differences between asset purchase stock purchase. We're not going to get into that, but very good advice. Last one to somebody. What advice would you give to somebody who's been established has a long term long time good relationship with an insurance broker You're Uh, on the outside looking in, what do you say to a guy who's been doing business with somebody for a long time? Uh,
1: I I run into that. And um, the last time that I got into that situation, it was somebody who was uh, doing business with a competitor for, I think it was 16 years. Um, I sat down and went through what I thought was important. And, After towards the end of that, he said, yeah, I've been with these folks for for 16 years. And I said to him, you know, do you realize the percentage of my chance to write your business? And he said, no. And I said, well, insurance companies lose approximately 10, 11% of their business every year. Uh, And brokers, it's about the same. So you're giving me a 10% opportunity to write your business. And those odds don't seem real good to me. Uh, It turned out that he wouldn't let me leave until I committed to to look at his business because he realized that it had nothing to do with money. It had all to do with analyzing his, his, his business properly. Yeah. Money and premium was going to come into it. Uh, So I, I got involved and sat, went through it and we wound up writing the business and he left. And he said the only reason I, I kept you here, he said, was because you were willing to walk away because you didn't think the opportunity was really good. And that was after we went through a lot, you know, an hour and a half of conversation. So uh, it's really important to me uh, that the people that I deal with understand where I'm coming from and know that it has nothing to do with premium. It has to do with helping people initially and hoping they, that they grow. And we just did the same. I know we were going to try to keep this to property and casualty, but just picked up in seven, eight hundred person benefit self-insured group. uh, Basically because of analysis and they had been with their, they had been with their broker for 17 years. So uh, those kinds of things do happen. And there are people that are interested, not just in price but in the relationship and advice and the solutions that you can provide for them. And that's something that I've always felt is, is really important.
0: Well, first of all, congratulations on the uh, benefits deal. That sounds great. Thank you. And from a contractor's perspective, I'm going to say this and you won't. I don't care if your current broker is your best friend. Challenge him or her because it, it, it's only going to help if they're It's not just about money as Joe said, it's about value. Value is money. It is the cost, but it's also the coverage. It's the ability for somebody to know what you need and get it for you uh, and and get not not too much, just enough. And you know, if your broker is good, they'll understand that and they'll welcome it. And at the end of the day, like Joe said, you know, 99 times out of 10, they're going to stay with the guy or the woman they're with. They're going to stay with the broker they're with. But you may actually improve improve your business and your relationship at the same time. And maybe you'll make your broker even smarter. So don't take anything for granted. You know, uh, last question, Joe, what makes you an Alliant worth talking to?
1: You know, Alliant, we're a big company and there's lots of opportunity for me to bring in just talented people from all over the country for whatever it may be. But I still think that what I bring to the table uh, is me. It's an interest in developing a relationship and helping people. And a long time ago, uh, I I went to a, a, a morning coffee at a CPA firm and they had a speaker in there that morning and The speaker said that what he tries to do every week is to try to help one or two people with absolute no monetary reflection of what he's helped them with. And he said, it's just unbelievable how it comes back in spades, how people say something nice, somebody calls you, but it always comes back. And that's, you know, that goes back probably 20 years with me and, you know, that's kind of the way I think. Everybody's not a monster account that you meet, but I've certainly been places where brand new accounts have turned into into 250 million dollar contractors. So everything is always an opportunity, and uh, my thought is always trying to help people.
0: Well, Joe, I I think you're doing pretty good. I look at you. I look at the backdrop there. It looks like you're in Aspen, as you said before we went there. So the biggest uh, our ending question is how can our listeners get in contact with you?
1: Okay. Well, uh, probably the best way is my cell, which is 443-831-1914. And my email address is the letter J and then Wolf, W-O-L-F at Alliant.com.
0: Well, you know, Joe, uh, the listeners should take that to heart. And if you think this is a futile exercise, think about you getting a job and how many different vendors you go to to price out let's say material three or five every single time Yet we don't take and I was guilty of this for a while and I told you that story you don't take the time often enough to uh to test the waters if you want I'm not I'm not suggesting you move from your broker but I'm suggesting that you talk to Joe if you have any questions because he's as real as they get Joe I can't thank you enough for joining us today You are an expert, a true professional, a good friend, and uh, we will see you soon in the future. Thanks,
1: Dave. Really appreciate the chance.
0: And I want to, again, thank everybody for listening. Stay safe and stay tuned. So follow me on Instagram and Twitter at Elevate Industry. Check out my YouTube channel at Commercial Construction, Elevate the Industry. Visit my website, adequate.com A-D-I-C-O-R-P.com. Go to LinkedIn, search for David Prostita, hit connect and follow Please rate, Elevate. review, and comment on this episode, and I look forward to seeing you next week. Elevate.